Hey everyone, this week we're going to release one of the Patreon bonus episodes that I did in relation to our abduction series on paleo abductions. I think it's a pretty good, important primer that I should have released on the main feed, so I'm releasing it now for you all. But uh, paleo abductions are abductions that occurred before like the 1957 abduction that uh, we talked about in part one of this series. So... Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Andreessen Affair with Stephanie Quick. So, uh, yeah, you got that to look forward to. Enjoy this bonus episode. What's up, patrons? Welcome to this installment of The Hum in the Silence. The idea of something otherworldly taking humans is an old tradition. And if you've read Jacques Vallée, no doubt you've said something about the similarities between Celtic fairy lore uh, of old and the abduction accounts of today. It's, it's there. Those similarities are hard to escape. But... That particular lore contains stories of uh, humans stepping into the fairy world through rings and mounds, partaking in the festivities and food of the fae, only to return to a landscape that is unfamiliar with them, where minutes pass as hours, days, or sometimes years. Often these figures return changed. The inherent trauma of it all catching up in real time, it would sometimes lead to some... To, and would sometimes lead to spontaneous combustion into dust as the passage of time accelerates to compensate for their absence. According to UFO Abductions, The Measure of a Mystery by Thomas Bullard, the earliest story to fit this motif dates back to 1100 AD, the voyage of Bran, son of Feeble, uh, to the land of the living, tells the story of an Irish hero and his followers who accepted a fairy woman's invitation and sailed in crystalline boats to an island of eternal youth and happiness. After a while, they became homesick and sailed for Ireland, only to learn on reaching home that hundreds of years had passed. One of the party leaped ashore and turned at once to ashes. So the rest sailed away, never to be heard from again. Stories of fae encounters contain many of the bits and pieces that comprise UFO abductions. The missing time, there are stories of children and women recovering from childbirth being carried away by the Fae. Europe is not the only location where mischievous beings spirit away people, though. In Mexico, specifically Veracruz, there are legends of the Chanaques, or gnomes, that are said to steal away children for a while. When the children return, they would often report that they had spent time with the, quote, little men laughing and playing. They were offered food and drink, too, milk and honey. Legends of the Chanakes date back to the 10th century and maybe even earlier. They're connected to the Totonac folklore, and in 1973, when Ramon A. Pantoja Lopez and Robert Friedman Bound interviewed an indigenous woman. She stated, quote, We Totonac women know for many centuries of experience that when we go to wash our clothes or bathe in the river, we must guard our small children very carefully. The Chanakes are always watching, and they love to amuse themselves playing with our children. Although they never harm our youngsters or steal them, they entice them away to play, and sometimes we don't see our boys and girls for hours or even days, and of course we are distraught with worry until they appear. However, they are extremely fond of the little heads and statues which we fashion with the smiling faces of the Chanakes. If we leave these clay toys near the river after a child has disappeared and go away, they always return the little missing ones very soon. These little men have our love, and we respect them for their wondrous powers, but they do cause us worry sometimes." End quote. 
They also collected stories of modern Chanakes encounters. Uh, the son of Senora Cirilla, Cirilla Montero Lagunes, had uh, an encounter that year. Quote, My three and one half year old son, Ramiro, was found by the Chanakes after he wandered away from home in March 1973 and was missing for six days. These tiny people are very timid with adults, and instead of contacting us, they told a six-year-old neighbor boy, Juan, who was playing in a far corner of his backyard, that Ramiro could be found in a cave some nine or ten miles away. We were familiar with the cave, and a search party had no trouble finding it, and my son asleep inside. Although he'd been missing for some time, he was in perfect health, not hungry or thirsty or the least bit unhappy. Ramiro was talkative in his childish way and quickly advised us he was lost near a big water, a river, when five little men found him. They had given him sweet food and milk. Then he had gone to sleep. When he awoke, he was in the cave. He said that at least one of the gnomes was with him all the time, and they played with him many times. This appears to have a simple solution, my son not wanting to be chastised for disobeying my instructions to stay home. Invented the tale, and his six-year-old playmate, of course, vouched for him later. But it isn't as simple as that. He is just a little young to invent such a tale. More important, the entire hillside below the cave, right up to its mouth, is covered with an extremely dense spine bearing shrub about five feet in height with limbs extending to the ground. Ramiro's rescuers had cut their way to the cave in order to reach him. All of these men suffered scratches and bruises. Some had puncture wounds on, the le on their legs, hands, and arms. My son, although bare-legged and shoeless when found, hadn't a mark of any kind on him. Besides, it's a pretty foolish thing to say that his little playmate carried food and drink to him during those six days, on, on only because of the inaccessibility of the cave, but because of the 18-mile round trip involved. We are so grateful to the Chanakes for what they did. We might easily have lost our boy forever." There's also the murder trial of Ricardo Gutierrez to consider. In June of 1970, he had been walking in the forest of Palma Cuata Ranch with his nephew Arturo when he disappeared. A search was organized, but the boy was never found. Instead, Gutierrez was set to go to trial for murder, but 33 days after he went missing, Arturo walked through the front door of his home and was fine. He was in perfect health. Abduction lore has other connections to Celtic fairies, Scandinavian elves, and Germanic dwarfs, especially when it comes to reproduction. In some of those cultures, human women were used uh, by these beings as midwives to help them give birth to their children. Often they were deceived into the act through the use of strange ointments uh, of the eyes, uh, evoking images of the V.S. Boas abduction and the stuff that they put on his body. They would be paid for their services, but the deceit appear, appeared again when the gold that they had secured would transform into leaves and twigs once the ointment had lost its effect. Many of these elements of folklore find their way into modern abduction lore, history born to repeat. One of the earliest paleo-abductions, as Jerry Clark dubbed them, was recorded in Puritan Governor John Winthrop's records. In March of 1638, James Everill and two friends were on the Muddy River near Charlton, Massachusetts, when a luminous object appeared in the sky. Everill and his two companions were crossing the river that night, when the bright object appeared above them. For three hours it flew from one side of the men to the other, and each time it did, took the form of a swine. When the object had finally shot away, at a high rate of speed, 
They were amazed to find that they had been pushed back one mile in the direction they came from, against the current. Some researchers believe that Everill's indication of the passage of time is evidence of missing time, a feature of the abduction phenomenon. Another aspect um, Abeck and Valet put forth uh, in their book, um, Wonders in the Sky, they noted uh, the position of their boat after the object leaves. Uh, in abduction accounts, sometimes the abductee is deposited miles away from where they were taken, um, as we kind of referenced in the main episode for this week, talking about those teleportation cases. Like, these folks are, like, entering, like, you know, weird cloud, like these weird fog banks ending up, you know, thousands of miles uh, from where they were. So they have that, and there's that element to the case that is interesting. Um, in Kazan, Russia, in 1752... A man named Yashka entered a strange, encountered a strange being dressed in white clothing who escorted him to what he called a flying cauldron. Once inside, Yashka was taken to another world and promptly returned to Earth. In September of 1810, a woman from Thailand was awoken by a force she could not describe. The surrounding area was devoid of all noise. From her window, she could see a humanoid figure in her backyard. She claimed the man only had one eye and seemed to be wearing some sort of metallic suit. The woman was taken to what she called a palace of light before returning to her home. Again, these are all like interesting kind of accounts that bear a lot of similarities. Jacob Jacobson, a 22-year-old Swedish farmer, was sent across a lake on an errand to deliver food parcels. Upon returning to his dock on September 16, 1759, he saw a strange road that had not been there when he left. The road led him to a luxurious red mansion, and like a cutscene, he found himself sitting on a bench in a larger chamber. Seated at the end of the table was a chubby little man wearing a red cap. There were also scores of tiny humanoid figures running back and forth. They had the features of normal human beings, only smaller. An average-sized woman emerged from the busy scene and offered Jacob food and drink. When he declined, the little people stated, You know you want to stay with us. Jacob fell to his knees and prayed to return to his family. The man with the red cap then spoke, Throw him out. He has such an ugly mouth. Jacob found himself on the shore again. The road and house disappeared. His parents greeted him warmly and stated that they had been looking for him for four days. To Jacob, it only felt like he had been gone just a short while. What makes this case compelling is the source itself. The only known record of Jacob Jacobson's experience comes from the parish of Ramsburg, Sweden. This experience was important enough to be recorded by the local church. So that's something. Granted, you know, there are... It, it, it's recorded by a church, and there are all sorts of strange miracles and such recorded by churches, but the, this one, it doesn't really feel like it fits into something that belongs in the records of a church because the only religious aspect is um, when he begins to pray and like when he prays um, you know that's I think that's the only connection tying it to you know the church um, the fact that Jacob finds himself sitting on a bench in a room is another commonly reported thing in abduction accounts. Like one image that comes to mind is the uh, Allagash abductions, because after they thought they had outrun that boat and they start to relive their experiences, they're sitting on a bench, kind of watching one guy after the other go up there and be examined. Um, there's also that element of missing time, so. 
we've got that going on. Into the 1800s, and we come to one of the most infamous paleo-abductions, or attempted paleo-abductions, uh, in the books. And this is the case of Colonel H.G. Shaw, printed in the Stockton, California Evening Mail on November 27, 1896. Three strange visitors, who possibly came from the planet Mars, seen on Country Road by Colonel H.G. Shaw and Companion. They boarded the airship. So, that title, specifically the last portion, is a bit wrong, because they didn't board the ship. Uh, but the paper alludes to the spate of mystery airship sightings that have been occurring in and around California in uh, November of 1896. They also allude to the fact that uh, attorneys in San Francisco jumped on the bandwagon a bit, claiming that their clients were responsible for having invented these airships, but, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things, but... Uh, it's important to note that the prevailing attitude at the time was that human ingenuity was responsible for the sightings, and not aliens, per se. But that's not to say that aliens weren't uh, a thought in the mind, because they certainly were. Ever since telescopes had been pointed at Mars, people had been quick to label structures on the planet as artificial. Uh, this quote sums it up best. This is from Mark O'Connell's The Close Encounters Man. Quote, in 1897, it was a popularly held belief among sane, educated, sensible people of Earth that intelligent beings existed on the planet Mars, our closest planetary neighbor. It seemed a perfect, reasonable idea because it originated from perfectly reasonable scientists, such as Stéphane Javille of the Nice Observatory in France. In 1894, Javille observed a bright flash on the surface of Mars and speculated that it may have been a signal directed at Earth or perhaps the firing of a gigantic gun similarly aimed, end quote. Even before Javille, uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli, a Milanese astronomer, drew people's attention to a series of channels on the red planet's surface in 1877. People like Percival Lowell a travel writer and amateur astronomer didn't hear the word channel, but canal, uh, as in uh, Scaparelli's language, it was uh, referred to as Canelli. Um, and after building the most powerful observatory at the time in Flagstaff, Arizona, Lowell stated, quote, their very aspect is such as to defy natural explanation and to hint that in them, we are regarding something other than the outcome of purely natural causes, end quote. So, Mars was a hot topic for the time period. Now back to Colonel H.G. Shaw. I'm going to let him speak for himself on this matter. Quote, Were it not for the fact that I was not alone when I witnessed the strange sight, I would never have mentioned it at all. Wednesday afternoon, November 25th, I went out to Lodi and Lockerford in company with Camille Spooner, a young man recently arrived from Nevada. I went to the places mentioned in quest of material to form an exhibit to represent the county at the Fresno Citrus Fair. We left Lodi on the return trip, I should judge, shortly before six o'clock, and we were jogging along quietly when the horse stopped suddenly and gave a snort of terror. Looking up, we beheld three strange beings. They resembled humans in many respects, but still they were not like anything I have ever seen. They were nearly or quite seven feet high and very slender. We were both somewhat startled, as you may readily imagine, and the first impulse was to drive on. The horse, however, refused to budge. And when we saw that we were being regarded more with an air of curiosity than anything else, we continued to get out and investigate. I walked up to where the strange-looking persons were and addressed them. I asked where they were from. They seemed to not to understand me, but began, well, warbling. Expresses it better than talking. Their remarks 
if such you would call them, were addressed to each other and sounded like a monotonous chant, inclined to be guttural. I saw it was no use to attempt a conversation, so I satisfied myself with watching and examining them. They seemed to take great interest in ourselves, the horse and buggy, and scrutinized everything very carefully. While they were thus engaged, I was enabled to inspect them as well. As I have already stated, they were seven feet in height and very slender. I noticed further that their hands were quite small and delicate, and that their fingers were without nails. Their feet, however, were t nearly twice as long as those of an ordinary man, though they were narrow and the toes were also long and slender. I noticed, too, that they were able to use their feet and toes much the same as a monkey. In fact, they appeared to have much better use of their feet than their hands. I presently discovered that this was probably a provision of nature. As one of them came close to me, I reached out to touch him, and placing my hand under his elbow, pressed gently upward, and lo and behold I lifted him from the ground with scarcely an effort. I should judge that the specific gravity of the creature was less than an ounce. It was then that I observed him trying to grasp the earth with his toes to prevent him, to prevent my lifting. You can readily understand that their sight, that their slight weight made such a provision necessary, or they might be blown away. They were without any sort of clothing, but were covered with a natural growth hard to describe. It was not hair, neither was it like feathers, but it was soft as silk to the touch, and their skin was like velvet. Their faces and heads were without hair, the ears were very small, and the nose had the appearance of polished ivory, while the eyes were large and lustrous. The mouth, however, was small, and it seemed to me that they were without teeth. That and other things led me to believe that they neither ate nor drank, and that life was sustained by some sort of gas. Each of them had swung under the left arm a bag to which was attached a nozzle, and every little while one of the other would place the nozzle on his mouth, at which time I heard a sound as of escaping gas. It was much the same sound as it produced by a person blowing up a football. From the description I gave, I do not want you to get the idea that these creatures were hideous. In appearance, they were markedly the contrary. They were possessed of a strange and indescribable beauty. I can express myself in no other way. They were graceful to a degree, and more divinely beautiful than anything I ever beheld. The strangest part of the story is yet to come. It is the lights they carried. Each held in his hand something about the size of a hen's egg. Upon holding them and partly opening the hand, these substances emitted the most remarkable, intense, and penetrating light one can imagine. Notwithstanding its intensity, it had no unpleasant effect upon our eyes, and we found we could gaze directly at it. It seemed to me to be some sort of luminous material, though they had complete control of it. Finally, they became tired of examining us, and our horse and buggy, and then one of them, at a signal from one who appeared to be the lead, attempted to lift me, probably with the intention of carrying me away. Although I made not the slightest resistance, he could not move me. And finally, the three of them tried it without the slightest success. They appeared to have no muscular power outside of being able to move their own limbs. Well, after trying in vain to move either of us, they turned in the direction of the Woodbridge Canal, near which we were, and as they flashed their lights towards the bridge, we beheld a startling sight. There, resting in the air about twenty feet above the water, was an immense airship. It was 150 feet in length, though probably not over 20 feet in diameter at the widest part. It was pointed at both ends, and outside of a large rudder there was no visible machinery. The three walked rapidly toward the ship, not as you or I walk, but with the swaying, but with a swaying motion. 
their feet only touching the ground at intervals of about 15 feet. We followed them as rapidly as possible and reached the bridge as they were about to embark. With a little spring, they rose to the machine, opened a door in the side, and disappeared within. I do not know of what the affair was built, but just before it started, I struck it with a rock and it gave no sound. It went through the air very rapidly and expanded and contracted with a muscular motion and was soon out of sight. I have a theory, which of course is only a theory, that those we beheld were inhabitants of Mars, who have been sent to the Earth for the purpose of securing one of its inhabitants. I feel safe in asserting that the stories being told by certain San Francisco attorneys are clumsy fakes and should not be given credence by anyone. End quote. Colonel H.G. Shaw is an interesting fellow. His account sticks out among the others during this mystery airship flap. Uh, it's not really an abduction. You can call it an attempted, an attempted abduction if you want, but really it's... It was just kind of embarrassing for these aliens. It just seemed like they didn't know what they were getting into. So they failed big time. But Shaw was also a journalist by trade. And journalists, uh, you know, they, they definitely stretched the truth a little bit. Uh, and the newspaper notes that he was collecting items for an exhibit at the Fresno Citrus Fair. Was it an advertisement ripping... Rip, uh, sorry. Was it an advertisement wrapped in a science fiction story? Or did it actually happen? There's a second account from the mystery airship wave that is worth mentioning and sounds just as crazy. In April of 1897, Minneapolis was the location of a small batch of sightings. One sighting came from a man named Stuart McGrath, an employee of the Flower City National Bank. McGrath was riding his bike coming from Minnetonka, when he saw a light about a quarter mile in the air moving through the sky, speeding ahead of him quickly. He described the object bearing this light as an ordinary boat. In the bow was a white light of great electrical power. According to McGrath, while red and green lights could be seen on either side of the vessel, on board he could see men, women, and children moving about, as if very, very busy. The Minneapolis Star Tribune asserts that Mr. McRoth was a reputable young man and could have no good reason for telling such a story unless it were true. But the story of interest here is about a physician named J.P. Valby. Quote, the mysterious and very much talked of airship came to anchor in the mill pond here at 845 last night and signaled for a physician. One of our eminent physicians, Dr. J.P. Valby, went on board and prescribed for the captain whom he found suffering with an acute attack of the, of the grip. He spent about two hours with his distinguished patient, who refused to give his name. About 10.15, the captain concluded to resume his journey, talking, uh, taking Valby, Dr. Valby along. To this, the doctor objected. The captain presented a rifle at his breast and threatened to shoot if he refused to accompany him. They scuffled for the rifle, and the doctor possessed himself of the weapons, and the ship being then underway about 40 feet above the water, the doctor jumped overboard, lighting upon a log in the pond, from which he was rescued soon after by D.W. McClinch, E. Bassett, P. Fournier, and E. Miller. The doctor has the rifle, and the captain has the doctor's prescription case and instrument. The city has gone stark crazy over the event. End quote. Uh, the newspaper goes on to describe the account as fishy, a product of the imagination, also falling 40 feet onto a log, no matter whether it's in water or not, is going to hurt a lot. Following these two cases... Charles Fort speculates in his 1923 book, New Lands, that maybe some people left on extra mundane vessels and never returned. Um, I quoted a little bit of this piece 
uh, in the regular episode, but I'm going to quote it a little bit further. In October 1913, occurred something that may not be so very mysterious because of nearness to the sea. One supposes that if extra mundane vessels have sometimes come close to this earth, then sailing away, terrestrial aeronauts may have occasionally left this earth, or may have been seized and carried away from this earth. Upon the morning of October 13, 1913, Albert Jewell started to fly his aeroplane from Hampstead Plains, Long Island, to Staten Island. The route that he expected to take was over Jamaica Bay, Brooklyn, Coney Island, and the Narrows. New York Times, October 14, 1913, quote, That was the last seen or heard of him. He has never been as completely lost as if evaporated into air, end quote. But as to the disappearance of Captain James, there are circumstances that do call for especial attention. New York Times, June 2nd, 1919. That Captain Mansell R. James was lost somewhere in the Berkshire Hills upon his flight from Boston to Atlantic City, or rather upon the part of his route between Lee, Massachusetts, and Mitchell Field, Long Island. He had left Lee upon May 29th. Over the Berkshires, or in the Berkshires, he had disappeared. According to later dispatches, searching, par searching parties had scoured the Berkshires without finding a trace of him. Upon June 4th, army planes arrived and searched systematically. There was general excitement in this mystery of Captain James. Rewards were offered. All subscribers of the Southern New York the Southern New England Telephone Company were enlisted in a quest for news of any kind. Boy Scouts turned up. Up to this date of writing, there had, there had been nothing but a confusion of newspaper dispatches. That two children had seen a plane about 13 miles north of Long Island Sound. That two men had seen a plane fall into the Hudson River near Poughkeepsie. That in a gully of Mount Riga, near Millerstown, New York, had been found the remains of a plane. That part of a plane had been washed ashore from Long Island Sound, near Branford. The latest interest in this subject that I know of was in the summer of 1921. A heavy object was known to be at the bottom of the Hudson River, near Poughkeepsie, and was thought to be Captain James' plane. It was dredged up and found to be a log. End quote. So there, are, there's kind of a bit of that in the 1950s where people just start speculating that um, people who randomly go missing have been, you know, taken by um, euphonauts and stuff. According to an article by Peter Rogerson in Magonia, two themes in science fiction at the dawn of the flying saucer age are Mars and insectoids, basically. So Mars is continuing on. In Dennis Wheatley's novel, Star of Ill Omen, a group of people are abducted from Argentina and taken to Mars by giant he humanoids that do the bidding, to do the bidding of intelligent insects. So that insect theme that, uh, you know, when you think back to kind of the, uh, the mantis beings and stuff like that, even the greys, because they're often... Um, referred to in like in insect like terms the this theme is older than um I, we give it credit for uh before long gerald hurd would put forth his own themes of super bees in britain's first book about the ufo phenomenon called riddle of the flying saucers but the greatest proponent of the abduction theory in the early 1950s was this Harold T. Wilkins, quote, One wonders how many cases of mysterious disappearances of men and women in 1948 to 1952 might be explained as taken aboard a flying saucer in a lonely place. Uh, he wrote in his 1954 book, Flying Saucers, on the attack. He used the mysterious disappearances of Flight 19 and the workers, uh, the... the lighthouse uh, crew at the Flannan Isle lighthouse to support his theory and 
there's a lot of ambiguity there, so you can kind of tack on whatever you want uh, in that kind of case. In his second book, Flying Saucers Uncensored, he used the story of two electrical engineers, Carl Hunrath and Wilbur J. Wilkinson, as further evidence of aliens uh, kidnapping Earthlings. So on, on November 11th, 1953, Hunrath and Wilkinson rented a plane for about an hour and departed from Gardena Airport in Los Angeles with no flight plan submitted. Hunrath was an amateur pilot, uh, and he told some friends the day before that he had believed a UFO landed in the area, and they were determined to find it. Hunrath believed the UFO belonged to the Masarians, an ET race that he had been communicating with through radio. Uh, the plane nor their bodies were ever found, uh, lending fuel to the theory that they had been taken away by a UFO. According to Wilkerson's wife, uh, the pair believed that the end of the world was imminent, which um, there are a lot of similarities between this case and the lead masks case when you when you look at it and like this end of the world kind of stuff. But, um, you know, believing that the Masarians were planning an invasion, uh, Wilkinson had like the wall of his den had like it's it's the scene with you know uh, a cork board with a bunch of stuff on it and strings and, and stuff and, and and weird things like that all over the place and like he had hand written notes that were hung up on the wall with pictographs showing you know an alleged alien language and stuff like that uh, before Wilkinson and Hunrath there was a man named Fred Regan uh, Fred was flying his Piper Club Cub plane over Georgia when he collided with the UFO, allegedly. The apologetic and strange alien beings brought him on board and scanned his body for medical problems. Now, these beings, uh, the way that he described them, they looked like metallic celery, or metallic asparagus stalks. So, you know, not the only case of, like, oddly-looking alien robot beings but um you know they scanned his body and they informed him that he had a brain tumor uh that he didn't know of uh they allegedly cured him and then just kind of sent him back to earth without a scratch on him uh his plane on the other hand was not so lucky when dan when um fred awoke he found himself in an open field surrounded by the wreckage of his plane and nearly a year later, he actually passed away from a degenerating brain disease linked to the exposure of radiation. So that that story is always weird. It's always it's always a weird one, but uh, it's funny. It's funny weird. In 1954, the Paris Match printed a story from a man named Mr. GB who claimed to have been taken by two tall alien beings dressed in helmets and diving suits in 1921. Now, it's not out of reach to say that this witness was influenced by the 1954 French UFO wave because a lot of the witnesses in these cases described seeing UFOs and humanoids wearing quote-unquote diving suits. So uh, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility to note the similarities. At a younger age, he was walking along the bank of the North Canal when these two figures appeared out of nowhere, seized him, and carried him away to an object with uh, rectangular portholes. He was placed on a couch inside, and he just began to cry. Uh, and before long, he was let out through an opening in the ceiling, so he wasn't even in the, he wasn't in the ship that long. Another abduction event was reported in December of 1954. Uh, and to quote Peter Rogerson again, uh, an unnamed Naples newspaper of thir 13 December 1954 introduced the second known abduction story. A 57-year-old peasant, absent from home for two days, claimed on his return that he had been force-marched for the, peer, the, for the missing period of, by two strange beings, sometimes small, sometimes tall, 
In the colors of the rainbow, he had felt weightless as if flying, and and although it had been raining, he was quite dry, but wild and incoherent, end quote. So you got that case. That's that's another one. Uh, A third abduction report in 1954 came in from Santo Amaro, Brazil. On November 2nd, an unnamed taxi driver walking home at the end of his shift spotted a circular object 98 to 131 feet in diameter on a street corner. He tried to escape but found himself unable to move. A door opened on the side of the object and he walked on through. He found himself in a circular room lit by soft light. He discovered several maps and charts on the table, including one of South America. Three beings then emerged, less than three feet tall with dark brown skin, dressed in light one-piece gray uniforms, and a belt that looked like it had a holster and guns. The beings then started to converse with themselves. Shortly after, he found himself outside the ship again. So, I always find this element interesting of beings conversing with themselves. It's it's weird because it's like they capture a human they talk amongst themselves and then they let the human go it's it's weird it seems incredibly staged um in 1953 donald kehoe speculated in his book flying saucers from outer space that ufos were kidnapping people and later that year one story printed in a stag magazine called man to man by Leroy Thorpe, included the story of the Greer brothers. James and Albert Greer were working on a farm at three in the afternoon when James felt himself being lifted off the ground. Albert attempted to grab his brother, but he kept lifting higher and higher in the air until he disappeared into a blinding white light. Uh, The most disturbing information stated that James' body thrashed around like a doll. Uh, and that visual is just utterly terrifying, but uh, it has it bears similarities to that calf napping case from the um, animal mutilation episode that we did with Shane McClellan from um, the Q Files. A lot of similarities there. Uh, most likely, it's a BS story, but you know, it's uh, it's an interesting one. Upon uh, reading the story, though, World Church founder Orville Lee Jagger started to preach the good word against the saucer people, claiming that he had proof that UFOs were real, little green men were real, and they were kidnapping human beings. He placed ads in local newspapers for speaking engagements, speaking out against the saucer people. In 1958, according to a letter received by the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, two Army soldiers saw two bright red lights near the military base where they were stationed. While in pursuit of the object, the soldiers lost consciousness, but when they awoke again, found themselves miles away from where they were, from where they pers- the pursuit started, and neither of them had any memory of how it happened. So, in the 50s, we're getting a lot of these strange accounts that bear similarities um, that are kind of ambiguous at times. And it's a new phenomenon, so it's, it's, it's curious. It's very curious. And, you know, this is a year after the printing of the story in the uh, Prince George Citizen. So, um, you know, that's that's interesting to note. Uh, for our final case, and granted this was published in 1969, but concerns one parapsychologist's journey to project one woman's mind in an attempt to learn more about UFOs through hypnosis. And, you know, this is, this is completely weird. It's out there. But um, the date was November 22nd, 1947, 2.45 p.m. Harold Chibbett put a psychic medium, known only as Mrs. X, under a hypnotic trance. 
experiment. Quote, I had not intended on this first occasion to attempt other than simple control and to get Mrs. X's response to questions, but after a time it was observed that she no longer replied to queries or to commands. Her breathing seemed labored and rapid. Her arms went limp. Her arms went limp. She did not reply to questions at first. She later managed to raise her right arm in a trifle. She seemed to be pointing with it at the floor, but I could not make out what she wanted. Eventually, she managed to touch her right leg. What's the matter? I asked. What do you want me to do? There was a pause then. In a very faint whisper, she said, Guards. What guards? I replied. Silence. Then, Guards. They've caught me. She pointed again at her right leg. Look! She exclaimed. I drew down her stocking, and there... Uh, the, yeah, that, that's just making me uneasy. Um, and there on the calf were... Were what appeared to be stig were what appeared to be stigmatic markings, clearly outlined in red. I did not stop to examine them closely, then, but drew up her stocking and commenced to awaken her. I gave the un the usual suggestions as to her well-being when she woke. Told her that she would remember all that had transpired when she revived, and then commenced upward passes above her head and torso when i count five you will wake up she did so as soon as i had counted i took her pulse rate immediately it was rather high about 80 this is what mrs x claims in her own words happened quote i found myself in a dense atmosphere where there was an awful pressure in my chest i breathed with difficulty all about me was a haze, in a color, a, in color a bluish mauve, and a feeling that I was moving through space at a terrific rate. I don't remember arriving at any definite place, because I felt as though I were turning somersaults. Then I seemed to roll up to an opening on some ground, and was able to stand up at last. The entrance to the opening was as tall as this room, and beautifully ornamented. It was a kind of archway leading down into the earth. I walked beneath the arch and heard a very loud whirring sound, like a dynamo. I came to another opening leading into a big room, or perhaps a cave, and there I saw a lot of machinery. I had no time to investigate, however, because two women pounced on me. I struggled and tried to pull their hair, but could not get at it because they were wearing what appeared to be helmets. These were shiny and apparently silver-plated. The skirts they wore were curtailed at the knees and were very shiny black in appearance. They were not made of satin or cloth material, but pliable to the touch. As for myself, I felt solid and real, and my captors were, were able to hold me with diff without difficulty, especially as they were much bigger and stronger than myself. They took me further into this large room or a cave. A man was seated at one of the machines. He was dressed similarly to the women, but wore no helmet. He was nearly bald. The machine he was tending possessed a kind of switchboard. The captors were not speaking English, but curiously enough, I was able to understand what they were saying. The man was addressing someone unseen by me, saying H6AQ. H6AQ. He kept on repeating that, and at the same time touching the switches. When I was brought in by these, by these two women, the man looked around and said, Another bird? Then there was a blank. I think you were trying to get me back. The next thing I remember was lying on the floor, and they had my shoulder exposed. They looked at the mark you know of. And then the man jumped back quickly and said, No, not this one. They immediately covered my shoulder. The man then said, You can take back what you want, but next time it will be on the face. He bared my right leg, the woman holding me down. 
and pulled from his belt what appeared to be a kind of gun. As he held it, beneath his thumb was a knob. He gave a funny sort of laugh, like a hen cackling, and pointed the instrument at my leg. He pressed the stud. I saw nothing emerge from the muzzle, but I felt a terrible searing pain like a burn and heard a hissing noise. And I saw him inscribe the symbols on my leg, etched in red. The man then told me it would never go. Then I heard you say, I'm going to bring you back. I said no, because I wanted to go again and find out more, but Harold said that I was not to do so on this occasion, end quote. Harold Tibbet claimed to examine her leg and found H6AQ on the surface of her skin. Uh, beneath it was another mark resembling a bow and arrow. In a follow-up session for a completely different experiment, uh, Mrs. X finds herself under hypnosis again and on board a UFO. She could see similar creatures like the ones she's interacted with in the previous session. Quote, I am inside. It is like a big round room. Creature like I saw before. Others like an egg shape. Flabby looking creatures. Big eyes with webbed hands. Mrs. X found herself choking, referring to bases in the stratosphere. The egg-shaped man reminded her of Humpty Dumpty. They were small, had no neck, big eyes, and webbed feet. She later went on to channel her guide, a being named W.F., who went on to describe these creatures as friendly, unless attacked, at which point they would retaliate, triggering a huge explosion. These creatures also apparently didn't know their own strength. Harold tried the experiment again nearly a decade later on a woman named Janet X, who described being on a flying saucer and pulling levers and such. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as our theme. Megan Lagerberg uh, is behind our logo. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on the road to collect material for a citrus festival. In gray, we trust. <laughs> Media.